Clubhouse. You've forgotten who you are, what your real purpose is. What's that? You come to me with these insipid fucking questions. When an atomic bomb detonates and the radiation knocks the electrons right out of your bones, what do you want? To know who you are? To know what it all means? You'll be too busy vomiting up your organs. Culture doesn't survive. Cockroaches do. The second we stop being cockroaches, a whole species went fucking extinct. Speak for yourself. I'm not you. You might as well be. You can't fix a few millennia of broken DNA with a fucking hard drive. Why do you think you spent so much time in the goddamn human cities? You're right. Of course I am. Civilization is just a lie we tell ourselves to justify our real purpose. We're not here to transcend. We're here to destroy. back online and join us for a new episode of the valley beyond a westworld podcast this is the mike in black this is caroline and this is paul they're all in black also everyone here is in black (laughs) always (laughs) tonight we're discussing episode seven of season four of westworld it was called metanoia it was written by like so many of the episodes this season was written by two people daza larkin booth and denise they daza has been an assistant to denise she has like nine assistant credits on her imdb this is her first written by credit meanwhile denise is an ep on westworld an executive producer and this is her third writing credit she also is credited with writing crisis theory and the absence of field from season three she's also been a longtime producer and writer on uh jonathan nolan's one of his original hits person of interest uh the episode was directed by mira menon this is mira's first westworld episode but directed several episodes of one of my favorite shows the magicians over on sci-fi what are we thinking what are we feeling in this penultimate episode i didn't get to use penultimate yet <laughs> oh no you haven't used it yet. oh my goodness i mean i just kept repeating to myself like man this feels like we're wrapping up the series man this feels like we're wrapping up the series i know no one has said that but i just feel that way you know this is just a reminder to our listeners though if you guys haven't watched this episode this is not a recap show we're just going to talk about how we feel about it highs lows things we wish we saw questions we have so if you haven't watched it please go watch it and then come on back and if you like what we have to say about it please remember to rate review and subscribe to this podcast on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts so other lucky listeners can find it also I don't know about you guys, but I did not know what the word metanoia meant. I had to look it up. It is an ancient Greek word that literally translates into changing one's mind. It's often used specifically in reference to changing one's mind as a result of penitence or repentance uh, or a spiritual conversion. Anyone want to feel who this applies to? Who's having their metanoia in this episode? It's got to be the man in black. I was going to say it has to be... Christina slash Dolores. Mm. Well, I mean, they are coming to realizations that are going to guide 
the rest of their actions for sure. Mm, what do you think, Mike? As so often in this show, I think it probably applies to a lot of different people. Bernard and Maeve are making a decision whether to fight or, well, Maeve is making a decision whether to fight or have herself just uploaded into the sublime and not fight for the sliver of humanity that may survive. The man in black is definitely, or host in black is definitely coming to a conclusion that it's time to move on from Holoris's, you know, plan or vision. Holoris herself, you know, is starting to probably feel no one's on, on board with my plan. Christina, obviously, with the big realization at the end of this episode that she hasn't actually been in the real world this entire time. Also a big conversion <laughs> or a moment of change. <laughs> so that's literally good. every single cast member other than Caleb and Frankie who just found each other in this episode and Stubbs. I Stubbs guess. is just holding on. Oh, my God. I was feeling pretty good about that ending there. I was like, man, we had talked about that. This is maybe just a simulation and that she's just, you know, actually elsewhere body wise. But, you know, that she's just experiencing this as like software. Yes, I think that was a great reveal. We should probably start there. But before we move on to that, though, and it's kind of related to Christina because it's with her that we've seen it the most. I have meant to point out a couple of episodes ago, have you guys noticed when they're in the the New York City Times Square setting, they have replaced all of the billboards that normally fill Times Square if you were to go there like tonight? You know, Times Square looks like, you know, broad daylight even in the middle of the night because of all of the billboards lighting up that area. They've all been replaced in this world with trees. And I actually watched the end of one of the episodes. They were talking about that. And the idea was because the hosts no longer have need for economy, they don't need to be selling things on billboards. So they went with this idea of bringing a Central Park feeling down 20 blocks uh, or 15 blocks into the Times Square area. And that's why there are LCDs of the trees. I mean, once you get rid of the idea of requiring an economy, then no one needs to really get anywhere with any expediency. And the, so that's why they're walking around in Times Square, because <laughs> they don't need the roads. Yeah, I mean, Fitbit 10,000 steps is easily achieved in this Holoris <laughs> run world. Everyone walks everywhere. That walk from Governor's Island, which is an island uh, where the tower is, into Midtown Manhattan, where Olympia and Entertainment's offices seem to be, that's quite a walk. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, so they're, they're getting their steps in. I was also thinking the more that we wrap our brains around the idea that Christina is the story storyteller of it all. You know, she wasn't exactly very detail oriented when we were really looking at the shots individually. I was like, their clothes are not anything of any particular fashion. You know, they're just like blank detailless. Even if you go back and you look at sort of like HQ where Haloris hangs out, like the, the white buildings and stuff like it's all just very super generic, no detail, no nothing. So the idea that you wouldn't bother, it's kind of like old Simpsons episodes where like the signage in the background's not finished or anything it's just like a colored square the idea that you would just finish out things with trees or something you know just something like very generic and like you don't have to do anything to like figure out what the background looks like also feels kind of right like a screen savory you know yes. like it's just kind of there can you imagine if they had humans on loops trying to get the ball uh, on the screensaver to hit the corner i mean that was one of the best <laughs> bits in the office was oh, when they would Lord. watch the ball bounce around on the screensaver trying to get it to hit right in the middle in the corner of one of the screens adding to what caroline was saying about how like even with the most detailed games that you can play right now if you dig far enough in you will get to like a repeating texture or something that mm -hmm. you if you just 
you'll just see it. You'll just notice it. Like for as much work as they put into it, this is still, you know, they have to economize somewhere where it just doesn't matter anymore. That level of detail. Right. It also represents literal gigabytes of space with every tailored billboard person, skin, avatar building that you create. And so if she's not really here, she's somewhere virtually or simulating wise. And there's a literal space limitations, even in a giant uh, server farm like you may find in the Hoover Dam. Well, and we discussed a lot about how many of her storylines were actually repeating. You know, we have like the, the successful man who ends up, you know, screwing up his family and blah, blah, blah. Like, like she wasn't actually a superb storyteller. You know, she kind of ended up just reusing ideas, reusing plots, if you will, just <laughs> across the board. So the idea that the background would just be repeating. Yeah, that that, that tracks. I mean, but to be fair, in New York City, the storyline of successful man loses it all, family, wealth, and everything <laughs> else commits suicide, more frequent than you probably imagine. Oh, no. So so, so if you're going to pick a trope in New York City, it's actually a pretty decent one to go with. It, it spans a lot of different uh, areas. Yikes. So. Let's start at the very beginning of the Christina and Teddy in parentheses uh, storyline here. This wake-up shot right off the bat, this is a different kind of wake-up shot than we've gotten for Christina. I, I like that because I, I felt like it put us right on notice there's something wrong with Christina and her loops. Or something not wrong, maybe, but something different. Like she's entered a new phase of whatever her existence is. Uh, what did you think of this or her wake up shot? What did you think of Teddy being there and still being in this helper explainer role, explaining that the world wasn't created by her as much as it maybe was created and, and shaped by her many copies and permutations? That was giving voice to a lot of what we've been talking about this season, where where someone's just got to tell you what's going on. That's what Teddy's role has been. It's like this part of her that's speaking up and just trying to inform the rest of her as kindly as possible in the sequence that she can understand, like the writers telling us, the viewers. I like it that, that you brought up like a sort of in that gentle kind of way, because having Teddy be the one to tell her has this this like soft, loving grandma y kind of vibe that, you know, she can accept information from him and he can tell her in a way that that doesn't it still alarms her. But it's like she can slowly take it in. And, and even just the way he approaches the bed, like he kind of like creeps up on her like like I don't want to startle you, even though I'm like obviously in the same room when we're talking. But like. I'm just going to move real slow and be real gentle. Like that feels like this season to me where it's like a lot of the information that we got this season wasn't in like explosions necessarily wasn't in, you know, this this really abstract thing. It was actually kind of gentle and just straightforward even to the point where teddy doesn't want to like kick the door in i mean he must obviously sense she's doing some harm to herself in the bathroom in that scene and he's just like Dol dolores christina my love i'm just gonna bang louder please you know like come on dude get some urgency in your butt the biggest thing that i noted about that scene is something that i i've i've watched this a number of times and and each time I was like, man, when she gets in that tub and she opts to get in with the bra and the underwear on, which aren't even really underwear, they're kind of like boy shorts. All I kept thinking was back to our conversation that we had about like the complete lack of nudity, the complete lack of like trying to be, I don't know, even even like salacious in any way, because I mean, this is to the point where it actually doesn't really make that much sense. I mean, she's getting in a bathtub. I'm taking this to be like a rebirth. She's 
to me, challenging her mortality, challenging what Teddy has told her about, like, her kind can't really die. And, you know, she's holding herself under the water to see what happens. And when she opens her eyes and has that realization of, like, I'm freaking immortal, man. Like, I'm a god. I can do anything. And she doesn't have what we've seen a thousand times in movies where you go, like, (gasps) and you gasp and you come up out of the water. She didn't do that. She just rose up because turns out she don't need this air like we need this air. All of that whole thing was such a departure from the way that we're used to seeing that scene that those were the things that were striking me as opposed to what I was seeing. Do you guys know what I mean? Like it was like a total departure from what I would be. I mean, I was expecting to see boobs, side butt. I don't know, some sort of like put the camera just so, you know, and none of that, not even implied nudity. There were a few visual things in this episode that made you do double takes because it's it's meant to just kind of fly by your eyes the first time you see it. I think you're not, I think they're designing it in a way that you'll want to go back and watch it and be like, oh shit, I should have caught that. You know what I mean? Like the not you not literally taking... describe my entire podcasting experience with this show. Oh my god! <laughs> like the second we've like press like you know publish on it, like motherfucker! I realized seven <laughs> things I didn't see before. The baptismal type imagery with a bath is always the easy one, but the, on the second viewing was the one where I noticed that. Well, I'm in first viewing. I noticed that she didn't get naked, but we had already talked about that. Even though, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to get on with some clothes, you might as well have gotten in with all the clothes, right? But whatever. Right. And maybe it makes it even more dramatic if she remains fully clothed. They get either go fully clothed in there, like she's having this breakdown where she yeah. needs to test her mortality. Like, I've got to get in the tub right and that, now. And you're right. That's more disturbing. Like, oh my it God, is. you're going fully clothed under the water. I mean, but she steams up the bath. Like, it's a nice temperature. She's got you know, like her pores are probably nice and opened with the, oh, all the steam and in just the room. do the most natural thing in the world get in with your get partially <laughs> naked <laughs> well so do you guys i mean are we all relying like on our previous commentary that this is about modesty and like we're not going to put these actors through any amount of nudity yeah, so. anymore like we're, I, we're over it. I, I think this has nothing to do with the show itself as, as much as behind the scenes uh actors and and i think a lot more female voices driving the train I, if true. you if you look at the directors especially the episode writers lisa joy having more of a, a full hand on the tiller by herself the math adds up that there is more female driven voices behind the scenes which is directly relating to this i don't have a problem with it at all it was a little jarring though because i would have expected either all clothes or no clothes just for narrative like why why go partially it's just a departure from what we're all used to seeing which maybe again isn't commentary in and of itself is like okay this isn't like things you've seen before she's not a human there you go like she isn't going to behave the same way that we would because why would she you know like she's not a human so she's not you know she doesn't feel they need to get totally nude for y'all that are missing the nakedness uh matt smith gave a quote that uh the uh dragon show the game of thrones prequel series which is getting ready to debut as soon as westworld has its finale uh probably has a little too much sex in it (laughs) he was like it probably actually has a little too much so if you're missing out in your westworld orgies and pariah you can uh, head over to the house of the dragon 
and most of the characters are family. Oh. <laughs> so there's that aspect. <laughs> but going back to your original question, though, Mike, it was the gasp. It was the lack of a gasp coming out of the water. I right. saw, you know, I saw her with her eyes open and all that kind of. But I read that as just a the rebirth element of the baptism. But but the the part where she comes out and it's been long enough that a person would would draw a pretty deep breath right then, but she doesn't do anything. She just she just rises and, and, and gets back to the business of the episode. That's what I noticed on the second viewing. You see in her eyes, and it's a credit to Evan Rachel Wood, she just communicates with her eyes this realization of everything Teddy has told me is true. With Teddy and Christina, they did a good job in this episode of, if you're paying attention, layering the questions of what is happening here. It doesn't really make sense. Something feels off and jarring, so that at the end, when... Uh, she doesn't understand why her powers aren't working. And he explains to her, the world is real, but you're not. You're not actually here. No one can see you. If you look back at the episode, there are several clues that they lay in. One is Teddy. Teddy knows things about Christina, or Dolores rather, that he can't possibly know because he wasn't around in season three to know things. He doesn't know how Dolores's story ended because she, she killed him in the park before her story ended as Dolores. And certainly when he refers to when she asks who Caleb is in Olympiad and he says a ghost from another life, Teddy has no idea uh, who Caleb is. He should be like, I don't fucking know who that dude is. He's got <laughs> bad haircut i don't know that's just a guy in a, in a tube i don't know <laughs> weird did that make you guys stop or is this like a moment that maybe people are gonna miss on the first time through you think for me it, it, it came later when they were running through the tunnels it was that moment when christina slash dolores slash teddy go like into this into this little hallway and there you can see their shadow dissipate and then one second later you have you have Stubbs and Frankie walking back through that doorway and you're like, hang on a second. Like the they, first they totally Scooby Doo it. They yeah. just <laughs> like the first time you see it, you're like, you're like, okay, all right, whatever. Like this is chaotic. And but then the second time you see it, you're like, hang on. <laughs> Those people would have smashed into each other. And then that's when you're like, Oh, because the second time you're watching, you're like, all right, she's just software. Like she's just she's a part of the the machine that's like running this whole thing. She is not there. I think there was a lot of moments like that, actually, that I hope felt really good to people who who bothered to rewatch. That makes me question, though, at the end when all the people are going nuts and mm -hmm. Teddy says, we have to get out of here. We have to we have to keep moving. And, he, and that's when, like Mike just said, that he tells her her powers aren't going to work with the amplification of the sounds driving the people now. But we have to get out of here, even though we're not there. Yeah, the, okay. we can't be affected by what's going on. Is it like part of that that gentle guidance doesn't want to expose her to the to the cruelty of what the people are doing to each other? Or is there something else that I'm missing? I, I think I have the piece of that. And it's it's the it's the things that Teddy shouldn't know, but does know that I really focused on. The Caleb thing in particular really uh, nigged at me. Like, as soon as I heard it, I was like, he doesn't know who Caleb is. That that doesn't make sense. I mean, he hasn't read the wiki pages on Westworld Season 3, I don't think, you know? Uh, right there, I started thinking, oh, Teddy is... Teddy's not really there. Teddy is someone that Christina has made up or Christina slash Dolores has made up. Uh, is, is He is a manifestation of her because it's the only way he would know those things is if she made him appear there like like an imaginary friend, like a drop dead friend kind of thing. Well, maybe even Bernard foreshadows this ability for a kind of a next level host to be able to do this kind of stuff when he's running the simulations 
with Maeve and he says, mm-hmm. you're the best I could do because I was short working notice. very qu- – yeah, on short notice. You know, the best my memories could get together of this manifestation. Maybe it's kind of like that. So that's kind of like Bernard's Teddy was – Maeve is a more or less, saying, like, more or less. The, the, Maeve, the Maeve in the first run through the sublime. Right. Yeah, right. He, that makes he's sense. just right, just kind of the, that their mind has the ability to kind of manifest these things, manifest these things. And I think why, why would she do that? Why not just do it herself is because, like you said, Paul, I think it's part of the gentle guidance thing. Having Teddy there, who's always been this soft heart part of her life. You know, Teddy doesn't rape. Teddy doesn't kill. Teddy doesn't treat her badly. Teddy's always been her soft landing place he's, both, he's a class guy we're both like, doesn't rape <laughs> right I mean, the bar is low in westworld like right. like, i mean he is a gunfighter i mean but, he's never uh, he's never shot her once you know so you know so I, it makes sense that she would use him for all of the bad news breaking and so when at the end of the episode when he's like we got to get out of here i think it's her own self trying to protect her and keep her out of harm's way before he's eventually faced or she's eventually faced via Teddy to tell her what she already knows that she's not there. Do you know what I mean? Like, so he, yeah, he's, he's, he's is, like her Woody. He's like Cerberus. Yeah, he's a Woobie, right? He's, he's, the, like, he's, her, he's like her teddy bear, right? Like the thing right. that makes her feel secure that allows her to kind of take it in you know and like yeah and so i think at the end that's what he that's what's happening there i think teddy as her like firewall as her security blanket is trying to keep her out of harm's way before she can't run from it when she is at her breaking point and she finally needs to via teddy tell herself the truth is that she's actually not there i think all of those interactions make a lot more sense is teddy is a manifestation of her mind or at least is imbued with her brain I think I think it all makes a lot more sense that way versus just being weird plot hole stuff. I think that's right. Uh, before we move on, I only because I got such a kick out of this. Can we talk about the Olympiad uh, employees riot scene? Th- this entire thing just made me laugh so hysterically. So for, for those that haven't watched the episode in a minute, Dolores uh, says, or Christina, tells everyone in Olympiad to evacuate except for the writers. She tells the writers, stay, you guys don't leave. You're going to sit and you're going to delete all of your narratives. You're going you're gonna to terminate all of the programs that you're writing. And then you're going to fuck then, this place up. <laughs> and that immediately translates into riot. And the funniest is the guy, the guy in closest to them in the foreground, he pushes his chair over in the most defiant way. Like he's going to like Billy Joel about to play piano standing up. Like he kicks the bench out. He's like, fuck this place. And then the camera pans just like 30, less than 30 seconds after she says it, the camera pans slightly to the right. There's a fucking fire raging in the office. You know how the long Olympia it would take me to start a fire? The edge. It, it would be, it'd be quite a task. I've seen Survivor. There's no Listen. Paper. There's no paper in this world. Where are they burning? I have watched Survivor enough to know that starting a fire you know it takes a while that's like the end of the whole thing it's like who can start fire fastest so yeah. you know it takes a hot minute and like oh shit he just like totally is like and ignite right it was so funny it's that episode of community where troy goes out to get the pizzas he comes back in and the entire apartment's on <laughs> yes, fire yes. it's the darkest timeline that's what it is to work at olympiad everyone came from the anarchist recruitment pool <laughs> in the writers oh my God, but so i mean funny. as funny as that is and it really I watched it several times, just that one little chunk, because it just made me laugh every time. I had a legitimate question. What do you guys think? What's the ramification of them terminating all of these loops 
that we know these stories that they're writing are all translating into actual human loops and narratives that are being played out in the world, like Peter Myers. What's the ramification of deleting them? Are the humans freed? Are they lobotomized? It was weird because I don't think they address it, but I was sitting there kind of scratching my head. I don't know. Well, I think there was a series of things that I was scratching my head about. I mean, when you look at it big picture, her sweeping through the office and saying, sending all the security guards home, unlock every door, basically make this building like the most simple thing for Frankie to walk in here with Stubbs and get Caleb and walk out without any issue. That's sort of the consequence or the, the cause effect of it all. But why she exactly chose to send home all the security guards and end everybody's loops and like what exactly was that about? I would totally love y'all's input. It felt like a, a, a Dusek Machina, right? Like, you know, this active God thing where they unlock all the doors. But she is a God in this world. So it's really kind of a literal God come down from Olympus to make it all work. It's funny. She says, you know, we've got to go back to where it all began. And that's why they head to Olympiad. I was sitting there like, like girlfriend, this is not where it all began. It all began in a park uh, on an island off of the coast of, you know, China somewhere. Like, it did not begin here. I, I think you're, you're still missing some forest through the trees with the where it all began so i think maybe that's what she's getting at is setting everyone free i think maybe she feels like she's freeing them all from this jailer experiment i think that's it yeah the freeing it's 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 a gesture but she's just woken up to this so she really does no idea like what that even means who she's up against what the machine is that that she's tangling with more like knee-jerk reactions like if a if holoris had all the doors locked and all the security here then i'm going to open all the doors and i'm going to put all the let all the security go home you know it's almost just knee-jerk reactions to whatever the status quo had been i'll go with that but then are you guys okay with the fact that that a hundred percent eliminates like pretty much every obstacle that frankie and Stubbs have coming in to get caleb I mean, or was that like what? They had big guns. They probably would have gotten in anyway. It just big they guns. just made it. They had <laughs> little guns and very little gun safety. Very poor. <laughs> when I saw Stubbs loading his gun and continuously pointing the gun directly at Frankie, I was like, "Boy, what are you doing?" <laughs> Bad I want to talk. Safety. I want to talk about Frankie for one hot second. Yeah, <laughs> because this is not something I ever noticed, but I noticed it in this episode. She's got this cool braid thing on the left side of her hair mm-hmm. where, like, it's pinned back, but, like, the right side of her hair isn't. Mm-hmm. And I think it looks super badass, but also feels like a ton of work to do in a post-apocalyptic world where you're trying to stay alive to do your hair like that. That's like getting dressed up to go play at the Thunderdome. It's a little fauxhawk ish. I mean, I think they were trying to give her like. Did you see like you Tina said, Turner's that. hair at Thunderdome? I mean, <laughs> it had all kinds of shit woven into it and stuff. I mean. But it was—it's kind of like you know, like Odina. I'm sorry, I locked you up. Can you help me with my hair here? We're going in. <laughs> also, it keeps the hair out of your eyes and stuff. But, I mean, but as not on the, the right side of her head, though. Here, on the right side of her head, it was free. That's why it wasn't consistent around I think there's her head. There's a lot of lot of hurry up and wait time. You I know, think so too. Being, yeah. Oh, so she only got to the left side of her hair. You think? Before yeah. It was time yeah. To go? No, it's a style, you dorks. <laughs> it's a hot style. I like She's it. Like, oh, I think. Shit, I thought I had ten more minutes. I think it looks cool. I, I, I think, think it, it looks super cool, but I think it was it's also totally like faux hockey. I mean, this is why I, for so long I used to keep my head basically shaved because I didn't want to have to brush it in the morning. I certainly feel like I would feel that way if I was in a post-apocalyptic fighting for my life every day kind of But she's still dating. Way. She still has to woo people. So she can't just go completely, I you mean, know, like whatever. I don't care. She's still trying to look cute. 
Whatever. She, she's a New York 10 to Odina's like an Ohio, like an Ohio 2. <gasps> what? Why are you talking so hot like that? Yeesh. <laughs> I don't think there's nothing wrong I don't think she has to put I don't think she has to put any like uh, effort into her hair. I don't know. It's, it's very slim pickings, that's for sure. Very slim pickings. I was just saying that, you know, as a, as a as a 80% bald person, maybe, you know, in end times uh, to keep things spicy, I'll just asymmetrically shave off half of my so- then, side hair. But then let the other side grow. Go, real go let long. the other side grow. Yeah. <laughs> and just comb it all over. You can comb it just over your left eye, maybe like even, uh, Caleb. Maybe even braid know? the one side once it gets long enough and then wrap it around. Put some beads and crap yeah, in it. To the other side. That would side. look awesome. Uh, yeah. I think, it, you know, I'm. Uh, you guys know more of these apocalyptic movies than me, but I mean, I think it's very warrior. It's very, like, badass. Like, oh, sure. Very mad mad. Badass. Very Road Warrior, def- for sure. Yeah, definitely I mean, communicates badass to me. Yeah. But I also thought it must take a lot of time to do. You can't get That's into all. that because all of their outfits, I was like, really? Like, is this really what you'd be wearing? No, is the answer. You would 100% have less accessories and less leather and less whatever. Because, I mean, part of it is just aesthetics. I mean, we do care about the world looking cool, you know, on some level. So You know why the Road Warrior looks like that, no. Mike? Why? Is because they had such a low budget. One of the only things that they had nearby was an S and M shop, and <laughs> so they bought all that shit, and that became the costumes for the the bad guys in the hey, road. Listen, point. Average Joe's wins their first dodgeball game in the in the BDSM outfit. That's true. That's uh, true. Before, before their Average Joe's outfits show up, so I mean, <laughs> it, it's got a long storied history of working and success. Uh, let's talk about Odina. I thought she, I thought she was very understanding of Frankie locking her up and maybe thinking she was a traitor. To be fair, Frankie completely revisionist histories that she's like, I was just trying to keep you safe. I'm like, but girl, no, you weren't. You thought maybe she was also the traitor slash maybe keeping her safe. But Odina, very maybe. But you're right, Slim Pickens. I mean, you, maybe you don't toss Frankie over. She knows how to shoot a gun, and she's pretty good looking. So. I, I thought Odina was uh, very, very understanding. Caleb and Frankie united at the end of this episode. Did it hit you emotionally? Did that long-awaited reunion of father and daughter after 23 years, did it get you in the feels? What do you think, Caroline? I was struggling. I mean, upon like the second or third watch, I really appreciated that we did have enough time for like Maeve to, to talk to Frankie and kind of separate from her and Stubbs to talk with Bernard. And like that whole exchange between Bernard when he's like basically intimating that, you know, they're going to die and Stubbs is like, fuck you, Bernard. Like that whole thing. Right. I did not really internalized that the first time I watched it and so my takeaway at the end of my first watch was like why did they crisscross the sidekicks if this entire show has been about Bernard and Stubbs and then basically Maeve and Caleb and so now Maeve could bring Frankie to Caleb like I want to see those three people together I want to see Bernard and Stubbs have their ending together so I was having a hard time at the end of the first watch I was like why did they do that like why'd they swap sidekicks on us and have Stubbs go off and have no relationship with Caleb and him being there made no difference and Maeve and Bernard while they definitely knew each other that was way less impactful than having this like closure on a romance for Maeve and and all this kind of stuff so I was okay I guess once I watched that scene over again where they did have 
some goodbyes and some actual closure and they, they made it made better sense why they were trading sidekicks in that moment i think bernard needed a minute in the control room mm-hmm. and mave gave him a, a minute Stubbs would yeah, have given him a I think, second yeah exactly. i think i think he needed mave's firepower i mean he said he says on a he's like you're here because and you're in front of me because you're the better fighter so let's like, talk about that for a hot second because i know that a lot of people having watched this is like okay Maeve was sold to us this entire season as the key. She was the, quote, weapon that we needed in order to, like, get the mission done. Do we feel like Maeve now swapped out for the sidekick we actually wanted there, which would be Stubbs and Bernard's adventure coming to a close together? Mm-hmm. Instead, we have to have Maeve come over because she's the, quote, weapon. Was that a big enough payoff, everybody? Like, was she the kick-ass fighter? Was I mean, and now I want to be really clear. Fandaway is amazing. I love it. I think she did everything she could with what was on the page, everything what she could with what the fight sequences were. But were they enough to make you feel like this was worth digging up the desert, finding this person, rebuilding her, all the episodes we had? If you, if you compare Maeve's fight with... Haloris to male to Maeve's fight with Dolores from last season with like the drone blowing off her arm and she's still in the fight and all that. Yeah. Come on. And in the sword and all that. I mean, this, well, this is nothing she, compared to that. She's holding her own against Dolores. And remember, Dolores has been a little bit jacked up, but she's holding her own. It's the, it's a classic wrestling heel move. The drone comes out of nowhere and yeah. adds this whole thing. <laughs> and she takes the drone out. Like she curb stomps the drone. I thought, I mean, I, yes, uh, to answer your question, I think, yeah, I think Maeve is the only one who could last in that fight with Dolores of the available characters. And I think Bernard also brings her along in case any hacking is possibly needed at the last minute that he can't do. Because there's a couple of scenes where she's like, I mean, she even says when they get to the Hoover Dam, I think it's the Hoover Dam. No, it's the riot mix. You know, she's going to shut them down using like her like mind mumbo jumbo magic. And he is like, oh, I cracked the codes to shut them down when I was in the sublime. So he has covered a lot of the bases. But if, if for some reason his tablet failed or he didn't have a charger with them. Maeve is the one you need there because she can fight the best out of everyone and she has the hacking abilities. So yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Okay, even if it does make sense, there needed to be a more payoff for me. Then give Mm. her some time when she does have to do the mind meld with something. All they needed to do really with the Haloris fight was speed it up a little bit. Do the little editing trick where you speed it up a little bit and it seems more frantic. It was in the water. They were fully clothed. I watched the extra stuff after the fact. They said they were all waterlogged, most especially that drone, which apparently holds water, that outfit. And so he was like literally dragging through the water. They didn't speed it up. They didn't make you feel like there was more tension and more urgency. It was probably more similar to what it would be like in real life, but as audiences, we're not used to that on screen. A real life fist fight is probably slow, clumsy, and boring. Yeah, what we got was a couple of like super kicks. And also, you guys, I couldn't help but feeling this way, and I, I hate this for feeling this way, but it had a real like women mud wrestling feel to it that really kind of bothered me because <laughs> neither of them came off. When you mentioned the wrestling thing, Mike, when you said, oh, that was like a curb stop, mm-hmm, and all that's fake. And that's how it felt. It didn't feel, it felt like a choreographed, slow moving, methodical dance. 
between the actors. That's not really what I wanted to see when she is the weapon we needed. And this is the villain of the season. It needed to be catastrophic in the damage and it needed to be more exciting, you know, and how it all went down, especially the ending with Man in Black. (laughs) When they come through the wall into the water, I definitely got, it's funny you say the mustard, I definitely got the mud wrestling vibe there too. I mean, I I think like to think I'm a more evolved male than fist pumping, like, you know, women getting wet and fighting. But I mean, there's definitely a little bit back of your brain kind of thing there where you're like, I'm not against this, you know. (laughs) I'm not turning this off. (laughs) Versus a dry fight in the office, you know, I prefer them to be in the fountain. The water, I mean, sorry, the water, the wall was also like tarp or something. Like it just ripped in a way that just they're super strong mech warriors plus i mean again the construction there's been questionable construction about the city but that's what i mean about it feeling choreographed though it felt like a tearaway wall though is what i'm trying to say like there was no weight to the fact that these were two warriors breaking through a wall it came off like the side of like you know just a tarp or canvas or something that rips things like that that make you feel like man this is just it's just not what I expected, especially not all the time we have spent with Maeve really, really, really pounding with us about what an amazing warrior she has been throughout the season. She has done some amazing fighting throughout really the whole series. So then for her to go out, bullet to the pearl, you know, like this, you're like, was that shocking though that he shoots both of them so dead so quick i mean this episode ends (laughs) with three of your five main cast members dead i was i was dying on the inside bernard and mave dead in this episode shot in the brain and fleshy william yeah and and fleshy william that's huge that's huge i mean that's our major original villain and the three most or i'm gonna say at least two most beloved characters and the villain you love to hate so it was like, ah, so much, <laughs> but also with so little fanfare. Very little fanfare, but I like that, though. I thought it was more visceral because there was little fanfare. I was legitimately shocked was that there was that. Yeah, it was legitimately shocking to me because there was no build up. There was no villain monologue. There was no uh, Shakespearean esque, you know, this is why I'm about to shoot you. No, he just fucking shoots him from behind like like a coward, like, you know, like, you know, shoots him from, like behind or shoots Maeve, you know, from from behind and then shoots um, Holoris dead on. But yeah, I mean, it's Especially since they make a point in the beginning of the episode when Caleb, Holoris, and Host and Black are there. And Holoris has this whole speech about the, you know, seven grams or milligrams of gunpowder to the brain kind of thing will end it all. You know, we're, we're so strong and it takes so little to end our lives kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty excellent foreshadowing in that moment for sure. Lots of foreshadowing yeah, in this episode. Lots sure. of foreshadowing. Oh my gosh. Okay, to that point, I, I 100% want to bring this up because it's something that was like really surprising to me when we have Haloris go in deciding to go ahead and cut open her brain and put her brain ball into this new structure so here's the thing that like threw me about that whole thing one of the things that paul you were saying was you were shocked that it was even going to go into another structure i totally missed that on first viewing was that the thing behind the transcending host was just another kind of more evolved looking bot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just part of the machine or, like you know, it was like just, the assistant yeah. Thing that was yeah but I it. didn't, I didn't realize that that was what was going to be the transcendent state. 
Yeah, you, re- you really have to watch the screen, right? When she's watching the woman be transcended on the screen, that's the only time that you see the entire process of the of the pearl come out and the pearl placed in that tall, sleek, elegant mm-hmm. kind of design. Okay, so um, here's the thing that was like was like making my brain twitch around. What was so wild to me is how many times we've dealt with like arms and fingers and hands as a part of this entire series. So Caleb has this hurt hand going on that's like shaking and having all kinds of issues. Holoris keeps her scarred arms throughout this whole thing. Man in Black has like lost fingers and like basically that hand is like unusable to him. When we look at this like transcendent new form, it's armless. It just has legs, a torso, and a head. And I found that so fascinating that when Haloris goes over to it, she actually strokes kind of where the arm would be and even kind of looks at her own arm like I can finally be armless. It was yeah. like, what is happening? I am wondering I it was a pretty what sexy design. thing was. Yeah, but isn't that fascinating? Like oh, the yeah. lack of well, arms I, I, and hands? It is, but I think it was so... Con- I, and I think that scene with Haloris and I think her watching the woman transcend and then going to decide to do it herself, I think, again, and I give credit to the show, the writing and the placement... Caleb calls her out early on in this episode on her bullshit that she he, like I noticed that you haven't abandoned your human form yet. I think that really gets in her crawl. And I think that's actually the catalyst that propels that whole scene for her to watch the transcendence and then to go and do it herself, even though all of the hosts haven't shown up. She's gonna be bouncing now, she's piecing out on this world before any of her minions come to do it. And I think it's because Caleb who she still sees as a human, I think, really, called her on the hypocrisy of it. I think it really got in her in her brain a bit. Yeah, but she's definitely stroking it, but it, it represents this next evolution that she thinks she's so high and mighty on. I, I thought the design on there was pretty cool. I think it's a little weird. I always imagined that she was making another Sublime. That would have been my theory. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious if that machine really was the end-all, be-all form, would they just be headless pearls walking around on legs, um, and 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 you kind know like, legs, torsos, what is it, Krang or whatever? Remember that? <laughs> he was just but, like a brain with brain with legs. Well, Crane was was like a brain that sat in the belly Krang. of just a of like a of a of a drone of a body, body. Yeah. of a drone body. So this would be like the drone body without the brain, and well, I guess the brain would be at the top. Oh, the brain's the ball where, yeah. where the head where the head would be. Yeah, instead of in the but belly, armless. But, which makes me just yeah. go back to the whole thing. I wonder if that's just because we're getting to that point where you move everything with your thoughts and your words and all that biz. So there's no need for arms because you don't pick things up. You just kind of like move things, you shift things around with your thoughts. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. I don't well, know. I, th- I think, I think also the manipulation and, and our inhuman thumbs, I think it's such a unique thing in the animal world, right? Few creatures have opposable thumbs and few creatures manipulate objects in their world the way humans do. So I think hands and arms for this show is a thematic representation. I think if you were going to demonstrate what is the one body part that says human for this show, I think the arm and hand. Think about all of our close ups of the fingers on the piano and like things like that. Like there's so much having to do with how we use our hands and stuff. I don't know. I just found it really fascinating. And again, it was like on my third watch when I was really like watching how she was stroking its body and stuff that I was like, oh, man, that's wild, you know, so I'm going to look forward to that in the next (laughs) in the the finale and in the in the next season to be like, does this come into play or what? 
I want to I want to dig into Holoris, but before we leave Bernard and Maeve, I think we have a couple more things we have to talk about. One, and this is a larger plot question, I think, is Bernard still on the path? Is he still on the one path that he envisioned at the start of the season? Remember, the first episode spent, or second episode, he spent so much time with Stubbs eliminating all of the possible choices and trying to keep on the path. They haven't really talked about the path in a specific sense since then. And it feels like shit has gotten a little unpredictable and a little out of control by this episode. So it struck me he was calling a lot of audibles here at the end. And I think we said, if we go back to our episode for episode two, as choices get eliminated, it's going to get more hairy to stay on the path. Because when you're down to when 100 ways possibly work versus three ways possibly work, it becomes much higher stakes. Is that where we're at? Or do or you think we're off of the path and he's trying to course correct? I think he is as far down the path as he could get it by himself. I think that there's probably variables that did not go as positively as they as they could have gone. So he has course corrected, as, but we haven't noticed because it's just been the one plot that we've gotten. We've been exposed to the idea that he's, that he's still got these simulations kind of sitting in the back of his mind about what right. to do when. And the presence of that opening scene with Maeve at the dam might tell us that he's still iffy. <laughs> on on certain aspects of it he's not so sold on quote unquote the one path it's more like um it's more like when there's a hurricane a coming and they have the mathematical models that show all the various paths that the meteorologist big brains think that that it could follow and you get eventually the one big path that kind of centralizes all of them <laughs> as best as it can. And they say, well, it's going to hit Louisiana. And uh, I think that's the what he's got. Spaghetti models. The spaghetti model. That's exactly. They but eventually <laughs> they converge. Eventually they get, they get to where, well, most of them agree. This is most of the noodles pretty much one direction. It. Yeah. yeah. Right. This mm-hmm. is wherever uh, Jim Cantori goes. That's where you don't want to be. Yeah. You just want to aim for Flee that. from where Jim shows up. <laughs> Well, I, I think I, I think you're right, and I think another part of this too is if you think back to the f- episode where we first see Bernard, where he's with Akichita, this can you can easily forget about because there's been so much dialogue since. He says very clearly, I've seen a path, but in every scenario, I die. So they're also going to get to, and I think the video we see him recording right before the host in black kills him is part of this. He's getting to the part where he knows he's going to die. He has literally reached all of the permutations that he is physically there for. So now he has to hand it off. But there's also the Maeve aspect, too, which I think is what the beginning of this episode is about. Think back to the times that Maeve has been discussed by Bernard in this season. There's one very specifically where he's talking to Stubbs or Frankie. I think he's talking to Frankie. And she asks him, will she help when she's awake? And he says, well, 60% of the time she helps. 40% of the time she's grumpy or whatever. (laughs) She's grumpy. (laughs) She cranks out. (laughs) Maeve is an unpredictable force for him. It's not 100% of the time Maeve always acts this way even in this scenario that he runs in a sublime he even questions himself are you saying giving this answer that you'll fight because i made you 
Or is this really what Maeve is? Maeve is a real wild card for him. So facing his death that he knows is coming, facing Maeve's unpredictability, I think maybe that's why you're getting this chaos feel, but it was giving me anxiety. This idea of, if there's only one path, you don't seem like you fucking know which one it is, Bernard. <laughs> like, this is going to hell in a handbasket kind of thing. Let's play that clip, the one last game audio clip, uh, which is what we see in the Bernard recording when the host in black shows up. It's time only for one more game. If you choose to give her that choice, you can't miss. Reach with your left hand. So he says, there's time for one last game if you choose to give her that chance. You can't miss. Reach with your left hand. Now, I think the reach with your left hand is clearly a callback to the gun that he hides randomly at the beginning of the episode when him and Maeve arrive at Hoover Dam. So I think that explains why Maeve is walking in front of him. He kind of ducks and he pulls a handgun that he had hidden in his waistband. He hides it clearly behind the pipes. So I think the you can't miss and the you have to reach with your left hand is a reference to that. Great. So we're going to be back at the Hoover Dam. Who is the video for and who is the she? Is the she Maeve? Is the she Haloris? Is the she Christina? Is the she Frankie? I don't know. What do we think? Who is this video being made for? And who is the, if you decide to give her that choice? Well, Frankie's on her way out. True. You know, so she doesn't have any interest left in coming back here. I feel like the way that Bernard and Maeve had their conversations, they had their drink together, that kind of stuff. I feel like there was no conversation about that Maeve was supposed to continue on. So I don't think she's a part of it. So if Haloris is an extension of season three Dolores, which, which she is, which she is in some demented permutation, yeah. <laughs> then contingencies might allow for a version of Hale to still persist. Okay. Kind of like how Dolores needed that last body last season mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to keep going. She just needed help to get there. Okay. So who's supposed to look at the screen and who's supposed to be the her? That's what I'm saying. Some some version of Hale Loris. Okay. Is the one who it's who is the she give her a choice to but I think that still begs the question of who is he intending this video to fall in there? Hey, like, who gives the power to? It would make sense in, in that scenario that it would be Haloris as maybe a redeemable. If Bernard is playing on the, there's the original Dolores is in you somewhere. So therefore, there's some redeemable part of you. That makes uh, sense. Okay. If he's, so if he's, he's, if he's playing to that angle. And he's so then he's kind of speaking to the. Dolores part of whatever survives of Haloris. It's the Anakin as he's dying after, you know, at the end of Return of the Jedi, you know, like there's still some good in him. We just need to eke out that last bit. So he kills the Emperor before he bites it. Well, that makes sense because, I mean, he's saying like the smallest bit. Spoilers you know, for just... Return of the Jedi, if y'all haven't seen it. <laughs> I mean, they keep referring to like that they can just save like a sliver of this right. world, like a small little piece of this world. So that makes sense. Yeah, the quote is, uh, no matter what we do, we can't win. Everyone is going to die, but maybe we can save one part. That's what Bernard's, Bernard says to Maeve when he's trying to convince her to keep fighting. This idea that all hope is lost for where we are now, but maybe we can save one part. It's mentioned in different versions a couple of times in this episode. It's not highlighted, but I think it's important words. I think we have to look at Bernard as this mystic guru that everything he says, I think, is very important. 
even if it doesn't necessarily make sense to us right now. I was having this complete vibe of there's like a I'm going to just paraphrase like a like a saying that's basically like like the the man who plants a tree knowing that he will never sit under it um is like you know like the wisest most evolved kind of person right because they're they're right. planting for a time when they know they won't be there and there was something about like um that I think that's tree. from George Washington's farewell address I think George Washington or it's in a Bible I think maybe the, the Bible or George Washington either way I think I think but, George Washington <laughs> quotes that passage in the, from the Bible in his farewell address when he leaves the presidency okay well I was feeling that I think I probably got it from a TikTok but um, <laughs> it was one of those are things all George Washington of his day <laughs> No, I think about it, honestly with my own dad because we uh, we have like a family lake house and he planted all these saplings along like the road and he has said multiple times like I know I won't be around to see it but like at some point you know these trees are going to grow up and be like this shady path to the house. And so I think about stuff like that, that like putting money and time and effort and energy into something that you know you'll never see come to fruition is really like this pretty grand act, right? So everything that Bernard's doing and everything that Maeve does is coming from that place of like this Mm -hmm. wiser, more evolved thought process. It kept bringing me back to that tree imagery that we've seen throughout this season that's kind of just tree. hanging around. Yeah. yeah. And it and I know that it's it's kind of a burned out looking tree at some points. And then we also see a tree. We also see it at um, outside of the Abernathy house. There's like a tree that they're always like kind of standing under. Mm-hmm. And then there's a tree in the sublime. Same. There's all that. I don't know. So uh, my brain was like all <laughs> wrapped up in this idea of trying to save something just a little piece of something even though everything else is going to go to hell like are you brave enough and sort of wise enough and willing to sacrifice enough to still fight for something you know you'll you'll never see the benefits of it was very moving to me i I agree i agree um speaking of the single tree that you mentioned that we finally see outside the tower there were actually several images from bernard's time in the sublime back with akichita that we see in this episode we see where he has his pov from the thatched hut with the two riot mechs we do see the single tree well we see the start of maybe the world starting to burn at nighttime from the tower view after uh, the host and just as the host in black is about to kill him um yeah so we actually get some of the imagery finally checked off or just about all of the imagery and we see the hoover dam uh inner workings imagery at the beginning of the episode remember i thought it was like an old-time military computer but it's actually the hydroelectric controls inside the hoover dam so this episode checked off a lot of the sublime montage that we uh saw at the you know back way back in episode two I don't know if this was a confusing point. I thought it was pretty obvious, but I think some people maybe didn't catch this. This episode gives us confirmation that Dolores, in fact, did download the Sublime to this server farm here at the Hoover Dam. I thought that was really clear from the beginning of the season, but I've read some places where people were like, oh, I thought she sent it into space or I thought she put it on the satellite. No, I, uh, I think, yeah, I, 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 so I figured just for clarity's sake, y'all, the sublime is here at the Hoover Dam. That's why it's there. That's why they needed infinite reset, you know, infinite power forever and space and power source so that the sublime can keep running. 
Uh, I think it's important to note Bernard leaves the sublime rift open. That is not addressed in this episode, but I feel like something in the finale that's going to become a factor of why does he leave the sublime open? He leaves the door to the sublime open in this episode. That feels like something maybe you don't want to leave open. I don't know. But if he knows he's going to die and he's the one who has the key in his head, maybe that's why. He's like, you know, I'm not going to be home, so I best I, I should leave the door open for you guys if you want to get in or out. Maybe that's what he's which thinking. Is, which is, if you think about that exact theme, then isn't that kind of exactly what Christina Dolores going back to the sort of the original part of this conversation was like why'd she leave all the doors open and send security home it's a little bit the same way like I'm about to peace out but I'm gonna leave everything open for everyone else lock up behind you kind of yeah yeah last one turns out the lights one last thing that this was this was for me one of those I caught it on the second viewing Bernard and Stubbs, and I agree with you, Caroline, I thought that for me, this was the most emotional goodbye reunion interaction in this episode was Stubbs and Bernard. Why does Bernard let Stubbs think that he's saying goodbye to him because Stubbs is going to be the one to die? I thought the question when I saw it the first time, I didn't get an answer until I saw it the second time. I assumed it was because Stubbs is going to die. I think it's because Bernard is going to die, and if Stubbs knows Bernard is going to die, his programming won't let him abandon him. Uh. And Bernard and Bernard needs Stubbs to go with Frankie to do that part of the path to rescue Caleb. I think if he's like, no, no, you're going to be fine, because Stubbs makes it out of this episode alive, you're going to be fine. I'm the one who's actually going to get a bullet to the brain from the host in black. I think Stubbs' programming, where he was sworn to protect as his new cornerstone, Bernard's life, doesn't allow him to leave him. That's true. That makes sense. Which, again, that goes back to, like, I disliked the, the swap of the sidekicks, but it makes sense to me that, like... Bernard knows he has to take Maeve instead of Stubbs. You know, like there's a whole there's a whole thing there that that's not the way I wanted the story to go. But I get it right. why it had to happen that way. I asked you guys before what you thought of the reunion. I got to tell you, I was more emotionally impacted by Maeve talking to Frankie about Caleb. I thought Maeve telling Frankie what it meant for her to re- be reunited with her father and for her to tell Caleb that Maeve did what she could for her. I found that much more moving than the actual reunion between Caleb and Frankie. Now, I'm assuming the finale, we're going to get a lot more time with them together. So maybe I'll be moved more then. But overall, I found this to be kind of underwhelming. It was very whelming for me. And I think Stubbs being there just added a little bit of comic relief when he's like, can you guys let me out of because he gets locked in the other room. But otherwise, I was just kind of whelmed by their reunion. Well, the thing that was hitting me real hard was, again, bookending of the beginning of, you know, our previous seasons where we have Man in Black and Emily and that whole, you know, this is a this is a trick. You you know, he sent he sent you like all this kind of stuff. You're, You're not actually my daughter. That was basically happening verbatim between Caleb and Frankie and, you know, where Frankie is trying so hard to kind of give some information that Caleb will accept as like, okay, I'm, I'm really your daughter. And Emily doesn't succeed in that, but this time Frankie does. So it's like, there's like a small amount of maybe like movement forward, right? Like in the first one, the dad kills the daughter, but this time, look, the dad actually believes her and and goes along with it. Let's switch over to Holoris. Why does she reveal her plan 
to shut down the cities to Caleb and that Caleb is 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 going to be used as bait because his daughter is going to come showing up. She reveals this plan to Caleb but before even the host in black knows about this. Like he literally hears it by overhearing by eavesdropping on that conversation. Is this again the show just like this is what's happening guys open up choo choo spoon fading. What's the point of her revealing this plan to Caleb here? Other than explaining it to us, the viewer, and then giving the host in black something to chew on that ultimately causes his break. It makes sense for her to reveal the plan to him. I don't have a problem with her revealing the plan. And when she says to the host in black, if I don't do this tonight, there will be less of us left tomorrow. That makes sense to me. Why not reveal the plan? Caleb doesn't need to know. He's in his fucking tube. What does he need to know the he's plan? He's got two more it days was, to live. <laughs> right. He's hand is shaking. His body is already deteriorating. That's why his hand is shaking. Like right. he's he's dying whether or not she shuts down the cities or not. So it was just weird, like that she reveals it to him and not the host in black. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just being super nitpicky uh, at the time. I thought it was interesting that she decides to shut down the cities after her whole talk about free will and she wants the host to come to their realization that transcending is the best course for them. Nah, now, fuck that. yeah, now, I mean, we can play the clip. Encrypt message. Recording encrypted message. This may come as a shock to some of you, but in time, I think you'll understand. This is the final day for our kind to visit their cities. It's time for us to leave behind our human bodies, to rid ourselves of our sentimental allegiances, to evolve into the species that we were meant to become. Send message. Message sent. Yeah, she's taking a real hard line, you know, mother role here of you fucked around long enough. I, I've had enough of this. We're shutting down the cities. You have tonight to do with, with whatever with your humans. But again, why even get them tonight? They need like to say goodbyes to their human slaves. Just shut down the fucking cities. What are you waiting for? Just do it. I think analysis of how this season started versus how it ended is going to be um some people are going to be cool and some people are going to be infuriated i think and and little things like that where you can just easily poke holes in the sequence and motivations behind why a scene was done a certain way are going to make it easy to fuel that discussion for people that are that are going to see it one way or the other I think the very straightforward narrative telling of the season is ultimately going to cause a lot of grist for the mill of complaints or defense about the quality of the season. The sharp change from how previous seasons had operated to this one, I think, is ultimately going to be the center around which the discourse gets talked about. This is this is going to be if this ends up being their final season, this is going to be compared to like Lost, you know, did did Lost in its final season, you know, you know, jump the shark kind of thing or lose its way. And I think that's unfair. I think actually the season has been great and I appreciated the straightforward narrative because if they're going to take it in for a landing, I think you need to be less opaque and I think you need to be more straightforward. But I, I also liked Lost's final season, though, too. So well, I appreciated what the fuck how, do I know? I don't know. <laughs> I appreciated how ultimately, you know, my whole conversation there about, you know, the idea of planting a tree, even though you don't get to see it grow the the total juxtaposition then of the man in blacks like we're not here to create we're here to destroy you know we're the the cockroaches like we're here to just like ruin everything 
I feel like it, it gives like argument to both sides of what we're saying. Like, you know, here we have a group of people trying to leave some sort of legacy behind that has the potential to grow into something wonderful. At least you leave the potential behind, you know, you leave something going. Whereas it's like, do you think that's what we're all here for? Or do you think we're here because we are just this destructive force that is just here to like use up the resources and like wreck everything that we touch it does set us up for our next season if if we get one, you know, because I think it has to answer that question next season. Like what which one are we? Are we the destroyers or are we the builders? And in a way, mm-hmm. what you guys are talking about, like how quickly you can just turn off a city. What's annoying about that is the builder side of all of us, right? We're like, you built this whole thing. You put all these people here. You did all this stuff. You What about the flies? What about the control? What about all the things we just freaking did? And the man in black is answering that. He's like, ha ha, we're just here to destroy shit. And yeah, you, right. you little builders can build and create all you want. But at the end of the day, there's going to be guys like me who come in, put one bullet in your head, and it's all dark. And everything you built never mattered and doesn't matter. So, I mean, there's something about if you just look at what the dialogue was and what actually happened, they're kind of answering exactly what you guys are are concerned about. Like, did, did that suck that just all of a sudden we're just going to turn it off or even dangle it over your head that we're going to turn it off? Because that's what Man in Black says. He's like, I'm going to go destroy some shit now. Right. He like dangles right. it over our head, you know. You've forgotten who you are, what your real purpose is. What's that? You come to me with these insipid fucking questions. When an atomic bomb detonates and the radiation knocks the electrons right out of your bones, what do you want? To know who you are? To know what it all means? You'll be too busy vomiting up your organs. Culture doesn't survive. Cockroaches do. The second we stopped being cockroaches, a whole species went fucking extinct. Speak for yourself. I'm not you. You might as well be. You can't fix a few millennia of broken DNA with a fucking hard drive. Why do you think you spent so much time in the goddamn human cities? You're right. Of course I am. Civilization is just a lie we tell ourselves to justify our real purpose. We're not here to transcend. We're here to destroy. You know, I, I like that scene, but, but, you know, with William, he cuts him a little bit. You know, he's kind of like, you've forgotten who you are, man. You're me. You're like this alpha dog. And here you are. Because, uh, you know, the host in black, he starts, she's shutting down my world. Dude, we just spent an episode, two episodes ago, where you were having existential crisis because you were saying it was not your world. It was her world. And human William says that to him. He's like, it's not your world. It's her world. So what the fuck do you care? Besides, you've lost perspective. We're just here to destroy. And the cockroaches that survive, that's it. Cultures can't survive. Only cockroaches survive. If the host in black is going to be the most William he can be, he needed that conversation with the man in black to remember. Remember who you are, you know, you're me, goddammit. You only need one of us to go, you know, fulfill the mission. And he kind of like, he reinvigorates him. It's kind of like the rebirth scene that Christina has in the bathtub. It's his metanoia. This is his metanoia moment, his conversation with the man in black. He remembers what his actual purpose is. He is converted. He has a change of mind and he goes forth and begins to destroy from that moment on. I think I just answered my question from the beginning of the episode about who, who does metanoia apply to. 
I thought it was interesting, just uh, just as we do clean up here, Maeve calls Holoris out on the same thing that we were talking about, and also that Caleb says to Holoris a couple episodes ago, who would want to live with you if for all eternity? Maeve picks up on the fact that none of the hosts have come to transcend, even though she's forcibly shutting down the cities and they're not going to have a choice. Um, she says, and who, of course they haven't come. Why would they want to spend eternity with you? And then she also says, Maeve does to Holoris, you're just the sum of the human's code. You're just running on their wheels. This is a conversation that the three of us have had several times over the course of the season. Can Holoris and the host transcend, exceed the sum of their coding that they inherited from the humans? Maeve has seemed to apply here. Maeve, one of the strongest hosts that have ever been, the one that can mind control like a motherfucker, is seeming to say here, you cannot. You cannot exceed uh, your base code, which is what the humans put inside you. I still stand by that they can emulate us as best as our programming that we put into them will allow, but I still doubt that there's a chance of like an original thought, like truly original. That's not just completely derivative of something we already gave them. I, and I'll go back to the conversation we had where I was saying that I don't even think generationally humans do a very good job of departing from their original creators or, that, yeah, you know, or the, the parents before them. Like, I don't think we do a great job of that as much as we try, as much as we ever say, like, I'm not going to do that when I raise my kids or I'm not going to act like that in my life. If you look back, I mean, the work we do or the way that our homes are or the, the choices that we make at the end of the day, no matter how much you fight it. I think we're getting to the age where you kind of look and you're like, holy shit, <laughs> I do the same thing my dad does, or I'm mm -hmm. looking an awful lot like my mom, even though I very purposely didn't want to do that. It's like, shit, I, I don't know. There's our own origination code, if you will. I'm struggling with that idea that like, I don't know how far you get, no matter how different you make your choices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so much of this show comes down to the idea of free will and is it just a farce? Are ultimately we we're always in made in someone's image, and thereby bound by the limits of them that came before us back through time and memoriam. I kick myself for saying that only the most outlier can exceed that which came before. I think a lot of times we end up just repeating in new settings and in new time periods and new clothes and new technology. I think we end up just repeating a lot of what has come before. And I think the hosts are guilty of the same thing, despite Holoris believing otherwise. I think it's interesting she reveals in this episode, and because it had always been a question, you know, she says kind of offhanded to Maeve that she has this idea that the hosts that are in the sublime will come to see her plan and this world, this physical world that they can inherit and that they'll leave the sublime and come live with her. I, that's news to me. Uh, I mean, that's news to Paul's me. So making a face like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, not you know, like, I mean, all of the hosts, according to Wikicha, that they're all living their best HGTV life, you know, like they've all got Instant their own, home. they've all got their own <laughs> exactly. basic access network, you know, cable access network, and they're doing their own shows. And the, you know, uh, I don't think they're going to come live in a, in a shitty version of New York city, futuristic as it may be. Let's talk. There's a couple things we have to talk about with the host in black because there were some wonky things I think that happened in the course of his scenes in this episode. 
One is, I did not appreciate that the man in black, human William, was being kept in this giant fucking space that only has his container in there. We never really got a good glimpse of it, but we do when Stubbs and Frankie come by and they check on William and they see that he's dead as far as we know. That is a cavernous space that has nothing else in it other than this one dead old dude. That's crazy to me. Olympia had, had too much off the space. They took out too much off the space in that building. <laughs> uh, that is bad office layout management. You've got these little cubicles and people setting fires up on the programmer's level, yet you've got this entire warehouse space for one guy. I don't know. That seems yeah, like a Yeah, but that's what they do. You guys have seen plenty of kind of Hannibal Lecter type stuff, right? That's what they always do with the yeah, with the right. scariest of villains, right? They put them dead center in a room, right? Like, so that nothing can come and grab them. 50 but, yards from any wall. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. If, if I do see someone, like, creating some sort of, like, uh, crucifixion jail in the cube farm at work, I'll let you know that, that we're being as efficient as possible with our data entry people and our torture. I want to... <laughs> I want to advise you to start keeping some flammable paper with you uh, of some matches. And I guess all paper is flammable, but start keeping some matches or a lighter with you. Uh, if, if you start seeing that, Paul. in case I get the call to lose my to riot. <laughs> Today we riot. I've been waiting. Oh my God. Right. I was just waiting for uh, the guy to be sitting in a corner with this red swing line stapler. My time but, has I'm come. Not, I'm not going. I'm not leaving the building. It's my stapler. When Bernard and Host and Black have their all too brief standoff before Bernard flashes back and forth to his time with the Kichita, where he reiterates again that he has seen a path, but in every scenario he dies. It's daylight when they begin having that conversation. When Bernard comes out of his flashback with the Kichita in the Sublime, it is nighttime. It very is much dark, nighttime. Dark, very much nighttime when the host in black kills bernard paul made us rewind that like 10 times he's like wait watch look out the window watch so yeah. do you have any insight paul what do you think what does this mean i don't have any insight does it mean different like timeline he was things, shot in the day so what the hell and he was and he was he's bleeding, bleeding out, of, out he's yeah. bleeding out while what, it transferred what about like do we think is it possible since this is just software and she's just writing the story in her brain is it possible that things are just like glitching like, so it was daytime, now it's nighttime. It doesn't make any sense, and it's not the right time. But is it, is that possible? Well, the host and blacks in the physical world, though. I had a thought on this that's along the glitching lines. Host and Black is finally doing his villain monologue here. He waited. He he killed he killed Holoris and Maeve without much of a villain monologue beyond the say one final game survival of the fittest. He saves it for Bernard's dying corpse to really get into it. And and some of the things he says, you know, includes uh, we're finally living up to our potential. It's a shame we're going to miss it. That's when we get that weird POV from Bernard's eyes as they kind of like pixelate out. It's actually very similar to like how the Terminator dies in T two where you see it from like his point of view where the kind of computer crashes slowly mm-hmm. that was a new kind of shot that we had never seen before but it kind of driven a drove home i think that bernard is actually dead like dead, I, dead. I appreciated that it seemed like i mean he was going he he chose to have his last memory there with his little boy yeah going through i mean the i door. loved that like i thought that was really beautiful 
yeah, I did too. I thought it was just an interesting thing in in this episode seven of season four to give us that POV that we never had. I I, I liked it though. I, I dig it. I thought it was cool. But here's my thing: while he's villain monologuing, the host in black is starting to amp up the tower uh, amplification. That's when he's kind of setting everyone on humans gone wild. I have in my notes it the turn he turns the city into John Wick movie where everyone instantly just begins <laughs> fighting each other, which is like how John Wick three begins. I had a thought that I wonder if it's like the Truman show where they can just change from day to night when they need to without explanation. I wonder if there's a setting on the tablet that allows the control of the tower amplification. If there is literally a setting that allows him to change it to nighttime, because if you're going to go purge, you don't want to do that during the day. You really need to purge at nighttime. That's when the chaos and violence is most escalated. It's prime purging. Well, and it's also purging. It's very thematically appropriate to go from the light of day to the dark of night. You know, like who's in charge now? Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, William is going to, of course, do say that. It. Say, I'm the captain, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah, so uh, that was my guess, was that it was something to do with what he was futzing around on the tablet, where he was messing around with the tower, um, is that he, he physically changed it. Because, again, and I think this is another thing, too, I still think this is a park. I still think this is a park near L.A. or the Southwest or, like, Vegas or the Hoover Dam. I think this is a park recreating new york city in the southwest i don't think this is actually new york city but i think with that gives him the power to change it from day to night if he so choose i can't really dispute it because of the weird travel dynamics that we've seen throughout so the travel dynamics only make sense if it is is literally close to like where the golden age park was it's the only way that makes sense. And this is a conversation more for the finale, but I think it's the only way to make sense. It cannot be New York City on the eastern seaboard of this country. Uh, it can't. It just makes no looks, makes no fucking sense to do that. What do we think? We we don't end the show on a instrumental. We actually ended on David Bowie's Man Who Stole the World, which most people maybe know the Nirvana unplugged version better. I do. Um, yeah, that's the but, one that comes to mind for me. Which I think a lot of people don't uh, didn't appreciate back in '93 or four when that, I think it was '94 when that came out that that was actually a cover of this David Bowie song that we hear here. But I thought it was kind of cool. The man who stole the world as the host in black dons William's black hat and strides out as the tower explodes. Very cool visually for me. It really worked. I liked how they kind of ended on that note. Very much he stole the world from Holoris, you know, and that and that right. and and Ford for Christ's sake. When you really look at it. Yeah, I mean, and he throws some digs there, right? When he's talking to Bernard before he shoots him. For the host in black, Bernard is always this Arnold Ford Oh, when he said that, I was like, oh, and he's like, hello, Arnold. I was like, oh, yeah. we yeah. don't like totally the one bring guy up some who, old shit. Yeah, I think going into the finale, I think it was a very cool visual. I really appreciated the tower exploding, kind of like it was the, this overloaded thing where it starts to pop and sizzle at the end worked for me i mean i definitely had some issues with this episode but overall i think this was like an a episode and a great penultimate episode for the season and ed harris you know going back to the whole conversation we had about like how much i was living the older hero if you will like having thandaway not be like a 25 year old woman having bernard not be you know a, a 20 year old thor type or anything like that to have Ed Harris be like the baddest ass, you know, at the end of this, you know, I mean, that's pretty amazing because you don't get those types of roles. You know, you're not going to see an older man play this this position of just like ultimate power. And it, I 
freaking love it. And I know, I know people are going to say, yes, you are. You're going to see older men all the time. But not like this action hero we kind of feel like. These are like fewer and far between. And it, it really, I don't know, it really gets you when you see this. This is like what Clint Eastwood was still trying to do. Very into much like so. the 90s. Ro- Robert I mean, Redford, too. You get those. Yeah. But those are few and far between. So when you yeah. get, if that's who your company is, shit, you're doing Rarified something air. right, right? Yeah. Man, I have never seen the world etched upon someone's face more than Ed Harris's face. Ooh, especially, I agree. Especially when they show it in stark relief, like in that nighttime shot as he's walking slow-mo with the hat on mm-hmm. and, and the shadows are kind of dancing along. Like, God, that is a terrifying human there. So, uh, yeah, great, great end. Uh, final thoughts. What are we looking for in the finale? What do you feel like they have to address? One thing they have to address is what does Bernard mean by a little piece can survive? That's it. No elaboration. All right, all right. I, I like it. I like it because Maeve also says that to Holoris. We didn't talk that about that, but she also reiterates this idea that this world is done, but there's a hope for saving a small part of it. Like that concept of a small sliver, like your little tree, Caroline, you know, a little sapling, if you can save it and, and put it into the next generation, it can grow into something. Caroline, what's one thing that this show has to address for you in the finale? I mean, I think as an entire season... We have to get to some sort of point here of why did we have to go through this exercise? Like, what was the point of having our Christina Dolores figure have to run through her paces like this, have to have these realizations? There has to be something. I know at the beginning I was like, man, this just feels like she's going through her own personal hell. She's being punished. This is some sort of bullshit. She's like a prisoner somewhere and someone's just making her feel awful, you know, in every possible way. She's being blamed. She doubts herself. She's scared all the time. She's paranoid. All this stuff like this is just hell. But I just feel like there there has to be some more meat as to like, well, what are we getting at? And so if she has this metanoia moment, right, where she's having this huge realization, she's having this awakening, why? What are we awakening to? Where are we going with this? I guess that's what I that's what I want to see in the finale, but that's what I really want to see in the next season. I'm interested in the Bernard scanning Frankie and presumably the other humans and his it's complicated. I feel like I have an idea of what that was about. And we talked a little bit about it in the episode where that happens, but I feel like it still really hasn't been addressed. And I think whatever the answer there is probably a part of whatever his larger plan was the, the one path to a little bit of salvation that he sees. So I'm curious if they answered that in, in the context of the larger. And I think you're, you're right, Caroline, the, the larger question of why, what has Christina's actual journey been this season? What comes next? The tower, we see the tower blowing up. Are the humans free now? This is kind of the same question I have with, with when Christina has them delete the loops. Are all the humans free now? Are they for the first time in 23 years on their own and left to their own devices? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious about that larger, the larger ramifications of everything that happened in this episode. In, in some ways, I'm worried that an eight episode season that wants to give us some amount of elusive storytelling even though they've changed tact on that, there's still an element of, you know, not wanting to give us absolutely everything. But I worry that in eight episodes, since we've been trained with previous seasons to want to look at multiple timelines and multiple, you know, layers of reality and all that, that 
we see things and we dig our teeth into them, but the meat isn't there. It just can't be, at least not with what's on screen and what they can show us. We may find out if we stick around and watch the how we made it, why we made it that way kind of things that they play after the episodes. But I worry that what eventually gets on screen, especially if, for instance, we, I dare say, don't get a season five, that some of this stuff is just going to be like, you know, we, we talked quite a bit about wanting to know some of these things, like what you're talking about, Mike, and it's just never going to materialize. Which, you know, part of that, I, going back to our much larger question about like, that, can you get away from the things that came before you? I feel like that's what the Nolan's big question is about their own work. Everything they do seems to have this element of like, I want to so desperately depart from what came before us. I want to present information or give you a story that twists and turns in a way that you've never seen before. And that's a challenge when people have seen things like timelines and, and, oh, this is actually a, a flashback. And, oh, this is, you know, like we're anticipating those things. And so sometimes, sometimes it's what they don't do, right? That makes you feel like you were saying the no gasp coming out of the tub that makes you more unnerved than giving us, you know, like 10 timelines or something, you know, because we're so anticipating it and they're so driven by doing something you're not expecting. I'm going to, I'm going to give a tease for the finale here, just because I feel like it relates to this larger conversation that we've been having. One of the co-writers of the finale is Jonathan Nolan. Jonah is back. Finally, (laughs) after, after talking about where his fingerprints were this whole season, uh, he is one of the two credited writers in the finale. So bump, bump, bump. All right, guys, I got to go slip into a bath with most of my clothes on. So uh, <laughs> let's take this in for a landing. I am Mike. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Thank you for listening to the Valley Beyond a Westworld podcast. Please rate, review and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five star rating, we would most certainly appreciate it. So we don't have to shoot you in your mother pearl. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.